So I thought we'd carry on with this study of the Gospel record of John. <coughs> when I was in uh, California two weeks ago, we majored on Ephesians because it was the daily readings and there were lots of examples from Ephesians. And when we were in Seattle, we, we majored on other scriptures, but I think John is a terrific example to take forward and there's continuity there with our own studies. We're in John chapter 1 and we've looked section by section and this is trying to illustrate. Now you may not have, you certainly don't have to and you may not agree with me on what a section is but at least now we know what we're talking about when we mean a section. We mean a coherent set of scripture which is defined by scripture's own markers for setting out a train of thought. So the next one, from verse 26 down to verse 31, <coughs> and, and look at the screen, but also look at your own Bibles to see that I'm not actually uh, fudging anything. 26 to 31 is John answering those who are questioning him. So he's asked, they've asked him, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you that prophet? And he says, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no. And then he explains in verse 26, John asked them saying, I am baptizing with water. That's in verse 26, I baptize with water. And he repeats that in verse 31. Therefore, am I come baptizing with water. So this section is framed by the very thing that John is famous for, John the baptizer. I've come baptizing in water. And then he says, I'll explain why. That's why I've come baptizing in water. Do you notice then he says twice that he's come to introduce the one whom ye know not. And we know that is a very significant phrase because we've already seen from the links of Exodus 33 that Moses' ambition is to get to know God. And John in the prologue, John the Gospel writer, in the prologue has told us he came and they didn't know him. And John introduces his ministry and says, what are you doing here? And he says, there's somebody here you don't know. And I don't know, I don't even know who he is. You see, at the point, it's, it's like the, the, the drama has been built up. We've got to know somebody. Well, who's that somebody? I don't know either. <laughs> I'm coming to introduce him, and I don't know who he is. Well, how are you going to know? Well, I'll know when it happens. The Father will tell me. God will show me who that one is. And that's the one we've got to get to know. So that's what the section is. There's a real excitement about it. And John says, twice he it is who's coming after me is preferred before me. He says that in verse 27. He says it in verse 30. So you notice how he says it in reverse order. At least the record of it is. And there's a question whether the record is you know, a summary of what John said. John may have said, much more. And we know there are these summaries in Scripture, don't we? Because we're told 
Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives his speech, the first speech with, you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, many other things he said. So what we have is a, a God-given praise of what was said. And now you've got this central section 28 and 29. And look at that, and would you divide it up this way? It seems to me that there are two statements. These things were done in Bethabara. Well, this is an observation. This isn't John speaking. There's John's uh, dialogue there, and John speaking again here. But the middle bit is a narrative inserted into John's conversation. And it acts as a central focus, and, but there are two separate points. These things were done in Bethabara, and the next day John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. The first time I tried to draw this out, I, I submerged Bethabara up there. didn't fit, so I sort of didn't separate it out. I didn't give it a separate line on its own, and I thought, that's, that's cheating, really. That's, <laughs> it is what it is, you know. Don't force it into a pattern. But then I thought, well, why does it mention Bethabara? What, what's that all about? Uh -huh. Nothing is redundant. This is the word of God, if, if we're told. And it's only the gospel record of John that tells us. Why does it say these things were done in Bethabara? Some people have said, oh, well, you know, John just threw it in for color, for verisimilitude, for just making it, you know, homely and uh, of general interest. Like saying they sat down on the green grass. Well, what do you think grass is if it's not green? Well, back home it's green. It's like to say you sat down on the green grass is, is redundant to say it's green. Grass is green. But it says, okay, perhaps it's not always green in some parts of the world. <laughs> so why say green grass? Because it's the time of year, because it's Passover time. And because this is the time when the sheep put on weight. <laughs> it's what the shepherd's looking for. Make the most of the green grass. It's talking about the shepherd of Israel sitting his people down on, in green pastures. Hey, you know, it's beautiful. Psalm 23. So I think, well, what's Bethabara? You've got to go back and have a look at Bethabara. It's just amazing. Well, there's Bethabara. It's identified today as a place where people do go and baptize. You can go, I mean, some people get baptized several times. They should get baptized on every trip they go on. Not, not Christadelphians, of course. And they're not being baptized, are they? They're just being immersed in water. But there's that place, and that's where we're told. To find Bethabara, we've got to go to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3 and 4. Talk about how Israel passed over the Jordan. And the word, or the name, Beth Abara, is the house or the place of crossing over. Beth Abara, the house of crossing over. Abara is the Hebrew word for Hebrew, the one who crosses over. And that Hebrew word is used in Joshua chapter 3 and 4 many, many times, where it is translated the pass over the Jordan. The people passed over. And the place or the 
house of passing over is the name Bethabara. And that place is identified in chapter 4, verse 3, when it says, Command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and he shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where he shall lodge that night, the house, the lodging place of Beth Abara, of crossing over, the lodging place at the place of crossing over. That was where John was baptizing. John was baptizing at the very place where the children of Israel passed into the promised land miraculously, where the flow of the Jordan stood, uh, stood still at a place called, all the way back to a place called Adam. The flow to the sea of death was stemmed by the Ark of the Covenant being put into the midst of the river. The Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you know, standing there, represented us through his work. God was reconciling the world to himself, and the flow to death could be taken all the way back as far as Adam. That's a parable of the Jordan. Well, why would John tell us this? I mean, it's interesting that it's the place of crossing over. Is that of particular significance in the gospel record of John? I think we find it is, generally, as we go through. You know, this, the gospel record of John talks about the manna that Moses gave them in the wilderness uh, and, and so on. So it's, it's particularly pertinent that John would talk about the wilderness wanderings and, and really, right at the beginning, bring us to the edge of the promised land where they're going to pass in. But why would it share? Why would it share a so central place in the section of Scripture with the Lamb of God? Uh, John at Bethabara says, "That's the Lamb of God. That one there." You have a look at Joshua chapter four, verse nineteen, and the people came up out of Jordan. On the tenth day of the first month. What happened on the tenth day of the first month? They crossed over Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. What happened then? It was the fourteenth day, wasn't it? So what happened on the tenth day? They selected the lamb. And they go to Bethabara and John says, Behold, the lamb of God. Amazing, isn't it? Why do we tell this Bethabara? Because it's bringing together. The day they chose the lamb of God was the day they went into the promised land by a miracle from God when the flow of mortality symbolically was stemmed all the way back to Adam. That's what John says. The Gospel record of John. These things were done in Bethabara. And the next day, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It's bringing ideas into our minds. So if we were to ex, uh, extend our search between those passages, right? we've got there something very interesting. In both passages, it's the priests and Levites who are center stage. In John chapter 1, verse 19, it's the priests and Levites 
who've sent the Pharisees to question Jesus. And it's the priests and Levites in Joshua who are standing with the ark. So there's an interesting question, you know, what, what was it about the priests and Levites? They now no longer able to recognize the function that they had or the lamb that they should offer. It's beyond Jordan. That's exactly where these things took place in chapter 3. Behold the Lamb of God. Yes, that's the tenth day of the first month. And very interestingly, the context is, and take 12 stones. What's John chapter 1 about? The selection of 12 men to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of them's name is changed to stone. <laughs> Rock. <laughs> All right? So chapter 1 of John is really playing out the prophecy, the symbolic parable of Joshua chapter 3 and 4. Amazing, isn't it? And what were those men to be? They were to be witnesses. What were these 12 stones to be? They were to be witnesses. They were going to take these stones into the promised land and they are going to set them up as a witness to the truth uh, of, of that miracle that had happened. What were the 12 to be? They were witnesses to the truth of the miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, would stem the flow to death all the way back to Adam because he was the Lamb of God. So John is trying to tell us uh, the Gospel of John is trying to show us these things. How so? Well, the structures are pointing to the key points which we then are pursuing through connections to other parts of Scripture. Now, we haven't got beyond 1 John verse 42, and we've got this amazing richness of Scripture coming in, making Moses... Uh, at Mount Sinai relevant, making Joshua at the Red Sea relevant, uh, bringing lessons from those places to bear in our understanding of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will go forward as well. So if you think, it's not just, just, just look back, it looks forward. So here's one example of looking forward. Given what we see, the richness, what do you think verse 36 means? And looking upon Jesus, as he walked, he saith, behold the Lamb of God. They were watching Jesus walking. Now, do you think he had an unusual gait? Yeah. As he walked. There's something about that phrase, as he walked. And they followed him. It says, in verse 37, they followed Jesus. Verse 38, then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, be the interpreted master, Where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and they dwelt with him that day. Did you get the emphasis there? They, they saw him walking, they followed him walking, and they came to where he dwelt, and they dwelt with him. It's a parable, isn't it? It's a par that's what discipleship is, isn't it? Discipleship is seeing Jesus, watching him walk, walking in the way, following him, in anticipation that he will invite us to dwell with him. Where do you get those ideas? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He that saith 
he abideth or dwelleth in him, ought himself also so to walk as he walked. That parable of discipleship is turned into an exhortation. In other words, there were brethren and sisters in the first century who were taking comfort in the fact that they dwelt with Jesus. They were in Christ. They broke bread. They drank wine. They were true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were all in the same room. <laughs> they broke bread together. And the Apostle John says, actually, you know what? The test of whether we are actually dwelling in Christ is not being in the same room. It's whether we walk after the same pattern. We walk as he walked. That's the test. Do we dwell in Christ? Do we walk as he walked? I think it's marvelous. It lifts up this, you know, John's going, hey guys, there he is. That's the one, that's the one. There he is, look. Don't let him out of your sight, follow him. Bye, John. And they're off, right? And they get to stay with him. But it's the walk that defines whether they're going to stay with him. It's, that's it, you know. It's about our walk before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the test. Not whether we say, you know, I'm a Christadelphian, fifth generation Christadelphian. Uh, I got the credentials. I got the family tree. I can prove it. That's, I, you know, that's, that's not the test. No. The true test is whether we walk as he walked. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we never do anything wrong, always do everything right. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. It means that there's the path to walk in. You're looking at him. Keep your eye on him. Try and follow him. You're stumbling. He'll help you up. Keep going. Keep following. Keep trying. And the tests in life are trying to knock us off that course, aren't they? They're trying to get us to, uh, oh, I'm giving up for this. I, I'm, I'm going to sit it out. <laughs> well, then we're not going to dwell with him. What about this next section? It gets more difficult to present as they become bigger and bigger. And I think it is, it is a section. It's the rest of chapter 1. Because if John talks about the Spirit descending. And at the end of the chapter, it talks about the angels of God ascending and descending. So at least there's some connection of thought. It's not maybe clear-cut. It's not a, not a cert, but maybe it's there. But what you do have is... Um, Two come and sees, right? Verse 39 and verse 46. And two sets of finding new people to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of them is selected out for a name change. And he seems to be symmetrically in the center of the section. And he is Peter, whose name is Petros, a stone. Which links with Bethabara, you know with the 12 stones that they selected, which would suggest that Peter's name was changed to a stone, not because he was unique amongst the 12, but that he was representative of the 12. Right? In fact, they were all stones to be witnesses. But he, in a special way, was the, the emblem of that. I just want to draw attention to this one here, right? this last part, Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Uh, Remarkable, because this, this is all about being a disciple. And here, right at the beginning, Nathaniel makes this amazing declaration, Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. And he does that without any miracle. 
without any sign being given. He comes to that conclusion simply by realizing that Jesus read his mind. He read his mind. How did he know that? Well, Jesus says to him, Ah, an Israelite in whom is no guile. I said, How do you know me? Now, he's not boasting. He said, how do you know I'm an Israelite with whom is no God? How do you know I'm, I'm a man of perfect sincerity? <laughs> that would be odd if that was the point, you know. How do you know I'm better than anybody else? He wasn't thinking that. What, what was happening is, what he's saying is, how do you know that's what I was thinking about? Jesus says to him, When thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you under the fig tree. I knew what you were thinking. You'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What were you thinking about? Where does that take your mind? Jacob. Jacob chapter, Genesis chapter. Okay. What are the connections between Jacob in Genesis 28 and John? There's one in particular. Okay, we've got an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Well, he was of Israel. Okay. No guile? Well, guile is a word that is used to describe Jacob. What is it about Jacob, though? Yeah. So what's Israel about? What had to happen to Jacob? He had to become Israel. He had to be born again. Now do you see the way this is going, right? Jacob's problem is he didn't come out first. <laughs> right? His problem is his older brother came out first. Hang on, get back. I've got to overtake you. If I'm going to have the promises, I've got to overtake you. I've got to, I've got to be the firstborn. But that would be according to the flesh. If Jacob had been the firstborn according to the flesh, the promises would have been inherited according to the flesh. But what does the prologue of John say? Not according to the flesh. To be children of God is not to be born a natural descent. Even if you're, only, even if you're Abraham's grandchild... Even if Abram's grand doesn't make you the right man. Esau was Abram's grandchild. Esau was firstborn. Esau have I hated, but Jacob have I loved. So there's a lesson going to come out. And then, you see, you get this echo of Jacob. That's all it is, an echo of Jacob. Well, why is it there? Well, it's there because surely we've been told that this is what Nathaniel was thinking about when he sat under the fig tree. What was Jacob doing when all this happened? He was on his way where? Where was he going? For what purpose? What's the next chapter about? It's a wedding in Cana. Where did Nathaniel come from? Cana. Whose wedding was it? Probably, probably Nathaniel's wedding. 
So what's he sitting under the tree thinking about? He's thinking about the principles of marriage. He's thinking about Jacob. He's thinking about all the trouble Jacob got into. <laughs> you know? So it's interesting, isn't it? That that's behind the, this, this one echo brings together the whole of Genesis into it. And the Lord says, an Israelite indeed is in whom is no guile. And I wonder if he was actually thinking about Nathaniel or whether he was thinking about Jacob. You know, in other words, Jacob had to become guileless to become the Israel of God. Jacob had to be converted. Jacob had to be born from above. So if Jacob had to be, then don't you think Nicodemus would have to be as well? <laughs> right? So Nicodemus, the chief teacher of Israel, what, what do you think the story of Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, is about? Maybe there's a deep principle there that the Gospel of John is going to reveal for us. Jesus says, you will see the heaven open. Jacob says, this is none other than the gate of heaven. But there's one more which I've left to last, which is actually occurs earlier. It, it's an amazing thing. If you just turn, if you will, please, to uh, Genesis chapter 28. When Jacob wakes up and he realizes the enormity of what he's just seen in that vision, verse 16 says this. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep. And he said, Surely Yahweh is in this place. And I knew it not. What did John say? He came into the world. And the world knew him not. John is saying to us that the Lord Jesus Christ Yahweh, full of grace and truth, manifest, was in this place, and they didn't know it. They were indeed the children of Jacob. But they have to become the children of Israel. Just being the children of Jacob, just being the 12 tribes of Jacob, just being the natural descendants of Jacob, gave them no special privilege to enter the kingdom of God. They would have to be born as Jacob had to be born from above, born of faith. So that is the one to copy. Right? I knew it not. It's just an amazing thing that you find these little points when you dig around and you think, wow, it all fits into place. That's what this reference to Jacob's ladder is about. Right? Why, why, where did, you know, you read chapter one, you say, where did Jacob come from? Just, why does it pop up at the end of this chapter? Because it's like the punchline. Because it is what the prologue's been saying. It is the great, here's Jesus coming to the people of the Jews, the descendants of Jacob, to tell them, you've got to be born again. And they're saying, we don't need to be born again. We're the children of Abraham. We're the descendants of Isaac. We're the descendants of Jacob. And John's gospel says, but, but look, you missed the point. You have to be born of God. Even Jacob had to be born of God. And Jacob doesn't disappear. Jacob turns up in chapter 4, doesn't he? 
because Jesus now goes to sit on Jacob's well. <laughs> That's where he wants us to drink living water from. And who was it who taught us about how to become the Israel of God? Who was it who helped convert Jacob to Israel? Joseph. And we're told that Jesus sat on Jacob's well next to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to Joseph, where Joseph was buried. And so the patriarchs are you know, just a little deep in this gospel record of John. They're there, waiting for us just to, to get a focus on them and realize that they're the backcloth to what is being said. This isn't some airy, fairy, uh, emotional cloud of feeling that John is talking about. Sometimes the gospel record of John is thought of as some sort of higher philosophical uh, musings on abstract concepts. That's the, the, the Greek way of thinking it. Actually, it's, it's anchored absolutely into Old Testament history and the family of the patriarchs and Moses and Israel in the wilderness. That's what the Gospel record of John is. It's how the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows that those wonderful teachings were about. Uh, the reference to the stone. Yep. So we've got the stone there, haven't we? Yeah. So we should put that one in as well, shouldn't we? Lee? Okay, so we should put into this now. We talked about the stone, but actually it's one of the key things, isn't it, of Jacob, that that stone became the ecclesia. First Timothy chapter 3. The ecclesia, the pillar and stay of the truth. That's where Jacob's head lay, where that vision of the future was given to him. So I've just taken John chapter 1 as an ex example to illustrate. It's, 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 it's good fun to go through it anyway and see these points. We've been going through John in out of class in Sunday school over the last three years. So it's not one to rush. And we've been going through it, <coughs> going through it section by section. Not that I have, I've been leading it, not that I've been pushing these patterns, but I've been using these patterns to understand how to go section by section. What is it to go section by section? Not chapter by chapter, but section by section. I, those structures which cover the whole of the Gospel of John uh, lead us through concept by concept through, through the scriptures. What do you learn then in terms of reflective learning on what scripture is teaching us? Then you would like to say what they've uh, realized, not just now, but realized before, about linking between passages? Jamie? And that, that's you know, what we saw yesterday when you looked within a passage that 
one line explains the other line. What you're saying is when you look between passages, one passage explains the other passage. That's what scripture, interpreting scripture, I understand to be about. I think what impresses me then as well is the hidden depth there is there, that you know, we take things at surface level and that's interesting and you know, that's not to deny anything about that's what, what it reads, it's obvious. But when you do a little bit more thinking and particularly searching, when you search, Proverbs chapter 2, wisdom is hid in a field. Look, look at this very, very powerful parallelism on the wall here. It is the glory of God to conceal a word, but the honor of kings to search out a word. That's all we're doing. We're not doing any more than has already been inscribed here uh, very uh, powerfully on that lovely piece of wood there. <laughs> right? that, that's what we're doing. God has hidden some of these things. Says, well, if we're supposed to know that, why isn't it written in big letters? <laughs> well, because it's the glory of God to conceal it. It's why the Lord Jesus Christ spoke in parables. So that only those who want to find, who are searching, who are those who are prepared to ask, remember, seek and knock. Not just says, do you know where wisdom lives? No, sorry. Ah, oh, fair enough. I've looked. Not my fault. <laughs> How many people did you ask? One. Who did you ask? I don't know. Somebody working in the store there? I don't know. <laughs> so didn't you ask anybody else? Oh, why? I was busy. <laughs> so you didn't go and seek. Ah, I'm just tired. I don't have any chance to do that. So then you go and say, yeah, wisdom lives over there. Oh, I haven't got the courage to knock the door. I've got, I'm a shy sort. I, I can't go knock. So... We don't find, you see, that the Lord is trying to say, you've got to do a bit more than that. And that's the honor of kings. That's where true glory comes from. Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ saying, you know, welcome, king, priest, into the kingdom. Yeah. Poor of this world. I couldn't pursue John, and uh, I think... I'll leave that for a later workshop that we will uh, you know, perhaps have a go at the chapter that we read today, this evening, as, as the workshop for that. And then I will, uh, in the presentation, do something related to that. So maybe before lunch, I will show you some other things just to whet your appetite for what might have gone on in Ephesians if we'd spent more, more time in Ephesians. So what we're still talking about you know, what is a link? When is it valid? Uh, when do you say, no, that's your imagination? When do you say, oh, I think you've got something there? Have a look at Ephesians and see if you think, I'm really stretching something now. Boy, he's, he's gone off on a flight of fancy. <laughs> I was looking at David in First Chronicles. The first reading, and I was looking at the choir masters. David had three choir masters whose names were Heman, 
jettison and they suffer. And then we were reading Ephesians and I thought, you know, those three choir masters are in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, it says, Paul the apostle of Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful. That's the word Heman. Heman is the word Amen, the faithful. And then you go down to verse 6 and it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And Jeduthan means praise. Do you know what Asaph means? Asaph? It means to gather together. Verse 10, that he might gather together in one, all things. So, am I stretching a point here? Am I really making Scripture say what it doesn't say? I've got three names in the Old Testament, three significant names, three people who led the praises of Israel, three people that David appointed to lead the worship in Israel, and their names have meanings, and the meanings of those names are found in a short passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Stretching a point or interesting? Or absolutely Rock solid. What would you say? Can you repeat them again? Heman, which is faithful. Jeduthun, which is praise. And Asaph, which is gathered together. Coincidence. The meanings of their three names is in this chapter. And not just in the chapter, but in this unit that we have already decided is a, a section of scripture. Oh, by the way, if you look at verse 6, you'll see David as well. See the beloved? That's David's name, isn't it? So is it coincidence that David and his three choir masters are in this chapter? Oh, I would think you would say, I hope you'd say, hmm, don't make too much of that. Where's that going? I don't know. That, that's, that's curious, but that's all at this stage. Well, if there is a connection, there has to be a reason. Right. So there's got to be a reason. For okay, okay. Can you think of a reason? This section of Chronicles, what's it about? What's the section of Chronicles where David appoints the choir masters about? What's our first readings been about? Like the building of the, the temple, or, which is referenced in the Jesus too. <laughs> right. Already you've got a contextual link. First Chronicles is about David preparing for the building of the house of God. Ephesians chapter 2 is about the building of the house of God. Is there a background to this? I mean, which, which epistle talks about singing hymns? This one. <laughs> so, maybe it's not stretching it. Why? What's the context of Ephesus? What's, what, what's Ephesus and the house of God got to do with each other? What was Ephesus famous for? The, 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 
wonder of the world, the temple which was the wonder of the world, the temple of Diana, the Ephesians, which they turned their backs on. They burnt their books. They, they left that worship. And now they're going to be the house of God. Maybe then there's some sort of code in those choir masters coming through. I think we've got a contextual link, Pete. Huh? But it's not really a very robust case yet. And I could, okay, I can tell me to do a talk in it, I'll do a talk in it, right? And I can make it as strong as you like. I can be as enthusiastic as I like and I can try and persuade you with my enthusiasm that this is connected. Right. And how, how they are to walk in. Very much in the start of verse 4, it says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are born. So you're saying that there are common lessons, common exhortations between them. Uh, what, what you would do, I hope now, is that you go look for other links, right? Uh, what was the temple built of? What was the material? Gentile material, wasn't it? Right, remember, where was it uh, brought in to the land? Brought in at Joppa, where, where Peter was looking out to sea. That's where the ships came from Hiram down from Lebanon, and they dragged those cedar wood all the way to Jerusalem to build the temple. The temple was half made with material of Gentile stock. So let me jump to that then. Here's my first table. I've got the three choir masters there. Look at some of this language, and it tends to come from 1 Chronicles 29, yesterday's reading. What does 1 Chronicles 29 uh, tell us? Well, 1 Chronicles 29 is about the, the preparation of the gold and the silver set aside by David to become the adornment of the house of God. And in verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29, David offers this prayer and says, Blessed be thou, Yahweh God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Yahweh. Thou art exalted as head above all. Is that the language of Ephesians? What about head above all? Where would you get head above all in Ephesians? Chapter 1, verse 22. He hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all. 
It's one of David's phrases. Right? Now the Lord Jesus Christ is standing in the position. What about riches? Where do you get that? Well, you get it in verse 7. Heaven and earth, David mentions in 29 verse 11. Well, we've got heaven and earth in verse 10, that God has gathered uh, into one all things which are in heaven and in earth. Now, all of a sudden, what seemed like, I've taken you through my thought process, what seemed like a tenuous link has now got a contextual link and it's got a frequency of very specific ideas. And now I'm beginning to believe that this is real, that the, the Spirit working through the Apostle Paul is expecting us to take into account the lessons from David preparing for Solomon. The lessons of how Jew and Gentile were joined together to make a house of prayer for all nations. That was the type. And what a wonderful encouragement for Trophimus. Do you remember who Trophimus was? What was Trophimus? He was an Ephesian. And he was the one that they said Paul had taken into the house of God in Jerusalem. And there was a riot as a result. Poor old Trophimus. He's turned his back on the Ephesian temple. He can't go into the temple in Jerusalem. He's got no temple. No, he has. He's got the temple of the age to come. In fact, he's, part, he's a living stone in that temple. Are those sufficient for you? Right? The glory, the blessing, the forgiveness of sins is clearly a David concept, isn't it? Riches in one. They gathered together. Because when that temple was uh, you know, brought into existence, when Solomon implemented what David had prepared, they were united as one. In fact, doesn't Solomon's name also mean beloved? Isn't that his other name, Jedidah? Is it David or is it Solomon? Or is it both of them? Is it the progression from David to Solomon that Ephesians is trying to capture? Or maybe a second table will help. Right? What have we got there? All things. All things. The exceeding greatness of his power to give strength unto all. Power at his own right hand. Far above principalities. First Chronicles 29 talks about all the princes submitted to him. Under his feet. He is head over all. Ha! First Chronicles 29.15 Strangers and sojourners. You know more strangers and sojourners. What's it about? Building a house together. I was uh, <coughs> thrilled really to, to see that. And you put it together. Of course you can make it look good by putting it on a table and selecting the words that you match up. But... Those words do match up, and they're not very common words. They're unusual words. They're specific words. The context is absolutely smack bang what we would want. Uh, you can see that. You've suggested that. I haven't suggested it without you saying it first. That's, so that would be the sort of process. You should have a chat with Ruth now at the back. She's got a little notebook where she's been comparing First Chronicles 16 and Ephesians, and she's got a whole page of those connections. Right? So, really good, really good uh, point, really, to follow up these uh, you know, possibilities and 
and search them down and see. And I think that's, that's certainly this has not exhausted the link. This is just you know, a presentation to say, I think there's something interesting there. And then it will draw on your knowledge of, of Chronicles and David's life to say, oh, I, I can see where that's going. I can see how those lessons come through. And, you know, if there's one lesson that I think we've written large now, which is Jew and Gentile. You know, wasn't David using Gentile skill? And wasn't he using Gentile materials to build the house of God? Isn't that what Ephesians is saying? That these Gentile Ephesians could be part of the house of God. That they were no longer strangers and foreigners. First Chronicles 29 verse 15. Even David says that we are strangers before the insogenous. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We all need redemption. We all need to be brought into covenant relationship with God through faith. It's not of the will of man. It's not of natural descent. It is of God. There's, there's a flavor of uh, what I think may be there. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, back home, somebody say, oh, that's his imagination. Well, test it out. Try it out. Prove it. Try the spirits. <laughs> Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. That, that's what we can do. It's not a matter of I follow what he said. That's disaster. <laughs> you know, we are individuals with our own minds to be converted and we make these assessments and we apply these criteria. Of course we learn from one another. Of course we do. But that's not just swallowing what we're told. It is actually assessing the scriptures and thinking about it ourselves, which makes us... Um, Helps us to be born from above, doesn't it? All right, I think that would be a good place to draw it to a close for now.